0: Welcome to the Conversations with Christians Engage podcast, where we go in depth with practical ways for you to pray, vote, and engage. Today we are joined by Doug Stringer. Doug is an author, communicator, and founder of Somebody Cares International, and he will be discussing his book, Mending the Net, which is our book club selection for June. To sign up for our book club, visit our website at christiansengaged.org and click on the book club tab.
1: Hey everybody, Bunny Pounds, Christians Engaged. It is Conversations with Christians Engaged is the podcast. You do not want to miss this episode. We are having so much fun with our Christians Engaged Uh, book club every month. Every month we're reading a book and we're talking through it as a group um, on the final Friday of every month. But wow, what an amazing quarter we've had of books. Um, We just got done with Marjorie Dannenfelser's Life is Winning book. So we're so excited this month in June to be reading our friend Doug Stringer's book, mending the net for those of you watching us on video here's what it looks like it's awesome it's a rewrite of a book that he did previously and it's mending the net bringing hope in a hurting world so before i turn it over to doug who also serves on our advisory board for christians engaged just want to tell you a little bit about him he's the founder of somebody cares america somebody cares international with chapters centers partnerships all over the world this man is involved in prayer initiatives, compassion outreaches, training. I mean, what a great leadership trainer he is. I know he's spoken into my life and has been an integral part of seeing the progress that Christians Engaged have made in the last few months. And Doug, so awesome to have you. And I can't wait to get in to, with you about this book.
2: I'm so excited and so privileged that you would have me on uh, on your talking about your book club and course, enjoy being a part of Christians Engaged and and really have enjoyed just hearing your heart and knowing the depth and the substance and yet the passion of your heart uh, to really see the body of Christ. Actually, you're helping to mend the net in many ways yourself.
1: We are. We're kind of bridging that weird gap between the political mountain and the ministry mountain and trying to get people to talk to each other and network and, and change the world one heart at a time. So, But, Doug, you know... Um, about me. My heart beats for the gospel and the body of Christ coming together. Um, My church that I used to pastor with my husband used to tell me, if we hear another message on John 17 and the unity of the church, one more time, buddy, we're going to scream. Um, But that's why I love this book. How can we as believers impact our communities together? So before we get into the essence of the book, Doug, tell us a little bit about your background and you have an amazing faith story of how you came to faith in Jesus and how that one decision changed your life. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: Sure. Well, the back end of the story, as you know, um, my mother was Japanese. I was actually born in Japan. My father, uh, biological father at the time, had been a underwater demolition frogman during the, the Korean War. Then he was stationed in Japan after the Korean War and after World War II and uh, and met my mom and obviously I was born there so I'm named after my dad and uh, but they were called frogmen before then he was during the Vietnam War he was part of the crossover where they began to parachute and those kinds of things he became a uh, platoon leader as well for the what they call the navy seals now so we were stationed uh, most of our uh, growing up my, my first probably 15 years lived in San Diego California because he was stationed at the amphibious base and but ultimately after the vietnam war i mean during the vietnam war when he retired and they went through a divorce my mother married my stepfather who was also career military a hospital foreman so we ended up getting uh going and being stationed in japan when we i was 15. so i went to an american school in japan for three years and then we went to washington state where he was stationed and but i kept struggling through trying to that place of knowing of the lord but not really serving god and had experiences with the lord so, I ended up coming to Houston when I was 21 years old, looking for my father who had left when I was about 10 years old. And it was great to find him, but it was how do you put all those years together, right? So, um, I ended up uh, uh, running a chain of fitness centers. And during that time, um, my best friend and I opened my own place. And then uh, my best friend was killed over a drug deal. I was living in sin with a girl from, from Australia. And I just went to my knees, and one of those moments where you're really struggling, and I said, Lord, I just can't take this anymore. And it wasn't an audible voice, but I felt a deep, deep conviction when the Holy Spirit spoke to me, which I now know is the Holy Spirit said, don't call me Lord anymore. Um. I'm willing to live for me. So that's, I simply just said, Lord, if you can do something with someone like me, who has broken your heart and brought shame to your name, I will make myself available the rest of my life. And I tell you something about that prayer of all the prayers I'd ever prayed that one, the Lord obviously heard the authenticity of the moment, turned my world upside down. And one day I woke up and I, I literally had uh, in our apartment, 17 runaways and street kids and gang members and homeless people. And, and it kind of grew from there. And, and started doing street ministry, and my exercise business turned into a Christian activity center, and uh, started leading people to the Lord from a dance company. It was now called Adam Dance Company, dancing to God, doing ballet, tap, jazz all over the world, Christian, and then uh, other artists and stuff that we led to the Lord. Start performing arts for Christ. Next thing I know, my business was going like this, but the ministry was going like this, and and that's when I I really realized the Lord had called me to the vocation of literally being in what we call vocational ministry. Uh, and, and of course, today, as you know, as you, you alluded to, that I'm involved in local, state, national, international prayer initiatives, have been a part of helping to do stadium events to also uh, ongoing prayer. But secondly, our Compassion Coalition of Ministries that we found that would cross racial, denominational, generational lines when you had a common purpose together. Yes. So my city and cities across America and now missions around the world, we have a coalition of ministries and a network. And then thirdly, because of that, when a disaster happens, I don't consider ourselves a disaster ministry, but because we know instead of working from the top down, we can work to and through local churches and ministries in a local community because they're the first responders before the outsiders come in. So we work with local churches and ministries and agencies within their communities. If it's Indonesia after the tsunami, to Haiti, the earthquake, to tornadoes in America, if floods going on right now, and in our country so we just get thrown into that so we became known for responding to disasters and working with larger agencies and local uh, ministries and churches to help connect and mend the net so we get more accomplished together and then because of that all over the world from athletes to political leaders to business leaders that i've had the pleasure of meeting and finding many of them were looking for tangible expressions of christ some coming to christ i mean i've had presidents of muslim countries asking us to pray for them and uh, in Jesus' name. And so then we've had uh, leaders and governors in, in, in Muslim countries, of course, in our own country, being interrelated in, and engaged, as you know, uh, Christians engaged, engaged in, uh, in the political arena as far as praying for. And I'm not limited to praying for a political party because, as you know, and I've written articles on that, I'm, I'm not beholden to the, the party of the donkey or the party of the elephant, but I am a follower of the party of the lamb and the lion. We can bring the kingdom principles into the culture. It should change the culture rather than the culture changing us.
1: Well, I love the genesis of somebody cares because you didn't go start out, right, as a new believer going, I'm going to do a ministry, right? It was just something in your heart that wanted to reproduce the love and the surrender that you'd found in the Lord and how he changed your life. And you wanted that to be through other people's lives, right? So in that vein, what do you tell people when they first come to to Jesus and they're like starting to read the Bible and they're starting to get discipled to get them to that place where all of a sudden they want to reproduce? Because I think, Doug, I'm going off on a tangent here, but that's one of the issues we have in our nation that you cover so great in this book is we have to reproduce. We have to go after new fish, right? So what's some advice to help all of us? continue to encourage people to multiply
2: well the premise obviously of the title of the book is is mending the net because with one fishing pole we can catch one fish but if we become a mended net together and realizing that every part is important that being used by the lord and cast together we can do a whole lot more together becoming part of something greater than ourselves because the kingdom of god is bigger than us and relationships so but one of the first things it's interesting you asked me that question is I was just talking to some friends recently who actually came to the Lord through our ministry and we've had some homeless business leaders that uh, had lost everything ended up bankrupt and I took them in off the streets back in the 80s today they're the president of their own oil related oil related company another one who was a fell into drugs and I helped him out and then sent him on to a teen challenge and worked with them and today he's uh, the head and the president of his own uh, very successful business out of it, southeast texas and just Bye. recently sold that company and so but there was another person who heads up a motorcycle ministry to outlaw bikers and to bikers and uh, they came to christ he and his wife and they will tell you whenever you ask them their testimony they said the thing that we appreciated one of the first things doug told us was this i will always fail you in my human frailty uh-huh. i will let you down but i can promise you this jesus will never let you down so when you hear anybody tell you something, it might sound good. If I tell you anything, I want you to find out for yourself. Get into God's word because it's the word that works. And if you don't know God's word and you don't have the time into in his presence, then you can let us straight. So don't listen to me alone. Be motivated, but get into God's word and get into his presence. Yes. Because man will always fail you, but God will never fail you.
1: I mean, that's the best advice you can give anybody to keep them. With Jesus over the long term. Ministry is going to fail you, church leaders, but Jesus never fails. And if we stay close to him, that changes everything. Well, well I, I could not stop crying through the first couple chapters. This book, and you know, the first chapter is called uh, "A True." I guess it's the second chapter. "A True Witness Rescues Lives," and then you have a chapter called "Something Bigger Than Ourselves." Again, just reminding my soul of the greater vision of the kingdom, and and you and I know that we have to beat with the hot the with the with the gospel. I mean, our heart needs to be beating for the gospel to motivate people to love and see the hurting. Um, how do we see the hurting, Doug? You, you as the young believer started seeing the hurting around the streets of, of Houston. Uh, you know, how do we as modern day Americans that are so self-absorbed <laughs> cry out to God to see the hurting and ask God to change everything about how we see the world?
2: Absolutely. You know, I love a quote by A.W. Tozier when he said that self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. You said it well. We have become so self-absorbed our self-righteousness, our self-centeredness, our selfies is even the term we take of taking selfies. You know, we're so self-absorbed in our own needs that at the end of my book, I actually will talk on that later. But Jesus said, look up from yourself and see if the fields are ripe and wide to harvest. And and that's so true. We have opportunity right now. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, in the context of all these things that will be happening in the latter days, like wars and rumors of wars, race against race, conflicts, tsunamis, earthquakes, um, just all these things will be taking place. But verse 13 of chapter 21 of Luke, Jesus says, but in the midst of all this, but let it will be an occasion for your testimony. So I think that as you quoted uh, chapter Two: A True Witness Rescues Lives. That really comes from Proverbs fourteen twenty-five. That has really resonated with me all these decades. And it, it says that um, a true witness. So, in other words, there are false witnesses. A true witness has the ability to keep a focus. A true witness rescues lives, or other translations say save souls. So, in other words, for me, I know if I keep my focus on my destination, my vision of destination, my purpose, my hope, then my job. Ultimately, who's gotten a revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection is to be the kind of witness that can rescue lives, but ultimately save souls.
1: So good. So good. Well, we know uh, about the power of the local church. And I always encourage people, especially young people, they get disillusioned sometimes with local churches. But when you walk in the room, folks. Uh, whatever perfect church you thought there was, you came in with imperfection. So just know that. (laughs) Know that you're walking into an imperfect uh, church anywhere you go. But I love how you talked about the collective body of Christ in a city or area coming together to meet the needs of a community, mending the net together, pulling in the fishes, trying to figure out where everybody's strengths are and weaknesses and where we can fill in the gaps together. And both of us know that government is n- not the answer. Government has a, a place in a safety net for the most vulnerable. But if the church did its job, we wouldn't even need government to, to step in in any place. Right. And so talk to us about what that looks like for a local city, for the body of Christ to come together and around a purpose.
2: Sure. And let me segue just a little bit off of that because it, it fits with Christians engaged. And, and I believe what is the intention in your heart and, and the purpose of why we are working together. And that is this that, you know, right now there's legislation and others trying to, in some areas, even in Texas, but I, it, this happened in New York City, it's happened in other places, where the local uh, governments or state governments try to find a way to somehow tax churches or nonprofits right and use it through you know drainage fees, which really is a form of taxation, or they find ways and they don't realize that if you take those churches and nonprofits out of the mix of that community, it's going to cost the city or that county or that state astronomically more to operate what those local churches do by heart and passion. That's a good York, point. In New York City, for example, I was talking to some city council there and friends that work there and and at one time, they decided that they were told the Salvation Army, almost like a, a blackmail, that says, look, we're not going to give you the X amount of millions of dollars we give you every year to do what you do in the, in the, in the social services in New York City if you keep talking about Jesus, because we have to have separation of church and state. Well, thank God the leaders of the Salvation Army went back and talked and says, no, we can't compromise who we are. Right. So they came back, and they had all these spreadsheets and had all these uh, pictures and and saying, look. Here's what you give us, which is a small part of our larger budget to take care of the homeless, the needy, the poor, drug addicts, and those in our community. But this is what it cost us in our budget, and this is what you actually give us. Now, if you take us out of the mix. That little bit that you give us in context of what it costs is going to cost you 20 times more, whatever it was, so much more to try to create the same thing. So they backed out, oh, no, no, we don't want you to quit. So the same is true. If you take the church out of a community, you not only are dealing with the the financial uh, stresses on that community that the church helps to cover, but emotional, physical, spiritual, and every other way. So the church is a critical infrastructure. Forget the spiritual side. It's a critical, important infrastructure in the critical infrastructures of a community. So that being said, uh, in my city back in the 80s, I found that uh, those who had a heart for common outreach and reaching hurting people tended to work together and cross racial denominational lines better. Right. And, uh, we had a person come to me who said, um, that the doctors told me that I have six months left to live of, of, because of HIV or AIDS and because of drugs and so on. He, had, he was an intravenous drug user. He had a third grade reading skill. And then he said the churches who cared about him didn't know what to do with them. So they said, go check out somebody cares and they'll help you. So make a long story short i think it's in the book with John Hazard we began to say what is it that you would like to do if you could if you had a lot more time than 6 months he said i wish i could read the bible because you have showed me so much care so i'm thinking what do you do 6 months to live and try to teach him how to read the bible so what we did was got got him a because hope deferred makes the heart sick but a merry heart does good like medicine so we ended up saying why don't we go ahead and get you a children's teacher who can teach you how to read out of a children's picture Bible. Mm. So they did that. Well, he ended up learning to read and write through a children's picture Bible, ended up going on 16 or 17 missions trips with our our ministry. He ended up living another three and a half years past the six months that were given to him from AIDS and ended up becoming my my number one intercessor and had prayer groups coming together all the time to pray for the ministry. And it was an amazing thing how many people came to Christ because of that. So it gave me an idea. If every church in the greater Houston area uh, tried to do the same thing and duplicate, it would cost a lot more money and and take a lot more to do. So I said, why don't we do this? If a person comes into your church or my church or whatever church and says, I'm homeless, I need help, you don't have to create a homeless ministry. We have a network directory, a net that works, mending the net, And say you know we don't specialize that in that but we're part of somebody cares greater houston and we do know a church or a ministry that does that specifically let us help you get connected with them or somebody comes in for marriage counseling or has hiv or or somebody comes with other needs then they don't have to create that ministry they just have to say we are part of something bigger than ourselves Let us find a church or ministry that specializes better in that area that can help accommodate you. It really is about, if it doesn't matter who gets the credit, it really is about the kingdom of God being advanced. And so things began to grow. We had churches, and by 1996, I rented an amphitheater for 40 days and called it Houston Prayer Mountain. And, Bunnies, you know, you've been here many times. Houston's flat. There is no mountain. But we found a landfill and it was a place where a lot of rock concerts were, and they made an amphitheater out of it with an indoor arena. And so I convinced the owner to let me have it for 40 straight days. I rented it for far less than what he normally would charge. And I, we had 300 churches come and participate on the first day we started. Amazing. Come you know, Baptist Church of God in Christ you know, Lutherans and Methodists and Assemblies of God and Foursquare. Every kind of denomination was there at the highest common denominator. We would open up every morning at six to pray. People would walk the property to pray. And every night at seven o'clock, we would start a night of worship. And it, almost every single night, it would go well after midnight. I had pastors from one particular large Baptist church come to me and say, Doug, on any Sunday morning, I don't see how this would work but it doesn't matter here. This seems, seems to be neutral and that this is where we can come together. And we saw people get saved. We had gang members come in, take their colors off and say, I wanna be uh, i want to be a, a Jesus follower and not a gang member anymore. We had, yes. we had people that go from every denominational background. We had people from 20 something different nations showed up in one night. And so it went all the way for the last 40 days of 1996. And from that, we ended up seeing citywide baptisms. There's 101 church, 105 churches, got involved in an open uh, uh, Adventure Water theme park. We had uh, hundreds and hundreds of people get uh, saved and baptized that day. During an open day, they closed down the wave pool, and we ended up having a, a platform to preach from the wave pool. And it had a record number of people that day at the, at the theme park. And then people came into the water, got baptized by all these pastors. And so we saw those kinds of things automatically become the byproduct. Salvation, healing, reconciliation, Uh, racial reconciliation when you have a common goal a common purpose in the Lord and for people God has a way of equalizing us and doing things that we couldn't do in our own strength
1: yes well and that's such a powerful testimony we've seen that here in Dallas Fort Worth too we had a big move of God a few years ago called Revive Texas where 300 churches came together and we went out and shared the gospel for 50 days it was but it just, it was amazing because that doesn't happen normally and it should happen more. And and I know our heart cries out for it because we can accomplish so much more together if we're united around purpose. And I just want to say this quote again, all these amazing stories that Doug's talking about are in the book. So you need to get the book and read these. But you said, we do not advocate ecumenical unity, which is merely unity for unity's sake. Rather, we unite for a purpose. And that is what you were just talking about. So we're so thankful for that. Now.
2: Well, I I like what John R. Mott, the Nobel Peace Prize winner in the 1940s, said. He said that, that evangelism without social work is deficient, but social work without evangelism is impotent. In other words, he understood that doing good works just becomes dead works. Yes. The importance of knowing that why we have a purpose in what we do is because of God's heart and compassion in us that he gets, lets us become tangible expressions to other people. And so when we do that, it opens the stubborn of minds, the, the, instead of the arguing of the mind, it opens hearts to receive the message of the good news of the gospel.
1: So good, Doug. And people need to evaluate that when they're giving to ministries. Is this ministry ministering to their physical and spiritual needs? Because if you're just ministering to the physical, you're not fulfilling the great commission um, of the gospel because it's heart and some minds change. Um, Okay, so we talked about that, the connectivity between outreach or meeting physical needs and spiritual needs. Talk to us for a second about prayer and fasting. (laughs) because people don't make that connection. The reality of going out and sharing the gospel or doing outreaches or helping with hurricane recovery or everything that you guys do can only be facilitated by the spirit. And we have to lay the foundation of asking God to receive, right? I mean, it's a biblical principle. Ask that we receive that our joy may be full. So how do those things go together? And why do you spend a lot of time doing prayer initiatives? Some people will think that that doesn't matter why. They don't even get that with our vision too. Why are you spending all this time getting people to pray for America or pray for five minutes a week? I'm like, it changes everything. Why does it change everything, Doug? Well,
2: from the very foundations of the ministries that we've been a part of we realize that uh, if we just go out to do work then you lose you'll end up getting uh, losing fuel and getting burning out of gas so to speak but if we are fueled by prayer which is communication with God and because I learned from the late Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole who was the founder of the Christian Men's Network and I still serve on the board of that um, prayer produces intimacy intimacy to whom you pray us and God Intimacy with whom you pray because agreement's the place of power. And intimacy intimacy for whom you pray. So there's something about communication through prayer. You know, Ed Savoso in his book on on, uh, evangelism, prayer evangelism, said, before you talk to your neighbors about God, talk to God about your neighbors. Mm. It's a way of when you engage in prayer, you have become uh, engaged in prayer for people. What God does then is begin to go before you to touch the hearts of those people to give you avenue or, or access to be able to minister to them so prayer produces intimacy i need that i have got to have that place of prayer secondly is the pr- place of fastedness and, and presence because i need to be in the presence of god through worship individual worship in private because what i do in private has everything to do with who i am in public uh, you know uh, while men reach for thrones to build their own kingdoms jesus reached for a towel to wash men's feet it's about personal intimacy Then we can join with corporate intimacy through worship and prayer that has corporate anointing. And we all recognize there was a corporate attack on the church, on the name of the Lord today, like never before. Right. If we're going to reach the soul of our cities or our nation, our generation, then we need a corporate anointing. That means we have to come together at the centrality of the cross, humbling ourselves, seeking God together. In that place, God gives us strategy and wisdom and commission and anointing so we can make a difference in the marketplace, in the public place, in the political arena. Whatever spheres of the culture, some call it the seven mountains. I know Bill Bright and Lauren Cunningham called it the, of the seven spheres of the culture. Uh, others now saying maybe there's eight spheres now instead of seven. Uh, all the point is we want to impact every element of the culture. And To do that, the only way to change it is not our human strength, but the presence of God who goes with us. So prayer, presence, worship, and fastedness is a way for me. For example, we did the 40 days of prayer in 1996. We actually asked everyone to fast with us. And I knew that everybody could not fast just on water or liquid with some of us, but I asked them, do what you can do. Maybe you can fast one meal a day, or maybe just eat one meal a day, or fast television. We had one professional baseball player and his family who always ate out. They never ate at home, they always ate out. But they decided (laughs) for those 40 days, they were going to eat home as a family. It made a difference. So when we recognize that our fastedness or our fasting calls us to diminish in the natural, to see God in the substance of our heart and spirit, there's a connection there. We may not see it at the moment, but there's a corporate release when we do this corporately together. In fact, Dr. Bill Bright, the late Dr. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, and now they're called Crew. um, he actually came to Houston two years in a row for his his fasting and prayer events, because he saw something was happening and percolating during that season. He actually was so impressed with Houston Prayer Mountain that what we did there for those 40 days, he wrote five pages about fasting in his book on the transforming power of fasting and prayer. He did five pages dedicated to what we did in Houston, because he understood the importance of how prayer and fasting actually engages in tangible ways to reach the community and outreach so we saw this residual effect this rippling effect that took place from us gathering in prayer and fastedness of course you probably read the book by Derek prince on (laughs) shaping history through fasting and prayer what an incredible book that also another great bible scholar recognizing though we all need to be involved in the culture we can need to be fueled by the presence of god that comes through prayer and fasting.
1: Yeah, you make you make when you start talking about prayer it just gets me excited Doug because this is why we spend uh, so much time talking about prayer with Christians engaged because if we don't engage our heart if we're not asking petitions of the Lord for our nation, our city, state and our nation, our elected officials, our leaders in our community, I, there's nothing's going to happen if we're not connecting with God in the place of prayer. Um I could talk to you for an hour, but we've got, I've got a couple more questions. We're going to just make this a little longer podcast than normal. Uh, you wrote in the book um, about we experience revival by choice or judgment. What do you mean by that? And what do you feel? I mean, you wrote this book how many years ago, and then this is the rewrite. What do you believe God is saying to us right now as it relates to revival or judgment in America? I just want to hear your heart on
2: that we originally published it in 2001 and uh and it keeps getting recirculated reprinted people still want because the blueprint is still the same it doesn't change there's certain things that never change it's god's the same yesterday today and forever so the principles still work but the publisher of the book because originally i had wrote it under the title the working title mending the net then it became passion for god compassion for souls and promise keepers gave away thousands of them and then the published version was called Somebody Cares a god to Living Out Your Faith by the original publisher, which I was never really comfortable with because it misses the real point. But uh, but God knew and was providential about it. But this last uh, printing just came out. I added two extra chapters, made some adjustments throughout the book to update it. And, uh, and the publisher, Whitaker House, said, Doug, the, the, just the message is so needed today more than even then. So we started the process. This was before COVID that we agreed to do this. And who would have known that through all we've been through in political divisiveness, national crises, global crises, that the, the book would come out just in the last month yes. and, and as a message needed more than ever before. So I was asked on a, a radio talk show one time, do I believe that revival is going to come by judgment or by choice? And I thought about it for a moment and I said, both. Because if you think historically, in 2000 years of the church, every time there was persecution, the church always came above the persecution and grew. Whenever there was times of impoverishment or poverty, God said, even during the Great Depression, I was talking to uh, to John Beckett, the businessman and owns Beckett Corporation, that his father started their company that's now in 13 different uh, places around the world and has thousands of employees. Um, He said they started during the Great Depression. So there were so many great entities that were led by those who loved loved God out of human impossibility, were able to come up with ideas that created jobs, created economic development, developed and and helped the local economies. And we saw that even through the most difficult of times. So historically, poverty, the church still prospers and grows. Uh, Persecution, the church expands, goes deeper and wider. But the one thing the church has always had a difficulty with in 2000 years, But God intended to give us for for stewardship purposes is long periods of peace and prosperity. Sadly, as you said earlier, Bunny, that we become self-absorbed. So God wants to give us long periods of peace and prosperity to be stewards of advancing the purposes of the kingdom of God and seeing people's lives rescued and saved. But when we become self-centered with it, we no longer think about others. We think about how much more can I get? What, What what's in this for me? So in times like that, circumstances become because we can have revival by choice or circumstance circumstances create us to get back to focus in humble posture vertical adoration and worship for us to get our perspectives right again i've seen this happen in communist countries i've been working with Uh, i started going into some of these uh, countries it was incredibly impoverished persecution uh, marxism and yet the church was flourishing in the midst of that in those contexts because they had a common purpose. When they, when the, the pressures came off, they no longer worked together. They began to be divided between each other again, between denominational leaders. I'm thinking, is this what we're supposed to do? I thought we're supposed to do this by choice because it's the right thing to do. So I believe that, that we're in a situation now where some will experience revival out of their own personal circumstances or corporate struggles. Or secondly, there will be an element of people who have had and carried a heart for revival and continue to walk in humility and the fear of the lord that god will entrust them with with the stewardship of riches honor in life so we can expand the kingdom by choice so either way it's going to happen in ways we may expect in ways we we ways we may not expect it's going to happen because i believe it's in god's heart to bring us revival charles finney the great evangelist and revivalist said uh, revival is no more a miracle than a crop of wheat in other words The the miracle is not in collecting the harvest. The miracle is in those willing to plant the seed in simple obedience and what God does to the seed after we plant the seed, water it, and
1: fertilize it yes 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 and i choose choice i choose choice i don't want judgment (laughs) (laughs) Um, but that's such a powerful message we get to choose and i think we have all experienced a little bit more pain in the last couple years right with covid and shutdowns and all this stuff that we've been experiencing but it's nothing compared i loved how you emphasized russia the Soviet Union and different places around the world. When you look at what other Christians are experiencing around the world, it's nothing, guys. American Christians, wake up. But it is a wake up call to us that it's time to seek the Lord in the place of prayer and in the word of God if we're ever going to have lasting impact. Which leads to my final question. Um, I love this quote by Leonard Ravenhill in your book. You said he wrote you a letter. You know, I don't even want to know that whole story. One day we'll share that whole story where he said, let others live on the raw edge or the cutting edge. You and I should live on the edge of eternity. Uh, Wow. Okay. To finalize this conversation and everybody before Doug answers this question, get the book, Mending the Net. Sign up for the book club. Join us as we discuss it the final Friday of June and uh, help Christians engage. But uh, this is such a powerful thing, um, Doug, and find Doug's ministry. It's DougStringer.com is his website. What in the world does that mean to you? I mean, that is just, for me, it was just kind of like I just stopped and thought, I want to live on the edge of eternity. And, and all of us as believers should want that. What does that mean to you personally, and how powerful was that, getting wow. in the letter?
2: Yeah, Brother Raymond Hill would become like a spiritual grandfather, so that he carried a lot of weight with me when he wrote these little notes like that, and writ- written to me, and and it really was impacting, and, and probably at least once or twice a day, I think about that quote and others, because there are times we get discouraged, and I just say, God, what's the purpose anyway? And I remember those words when he said, that others live on the raw edge or the cutting edge. You and I should live on the edge of eternity. When I think about that, and no matter what I'm going through, there's multitudes upon multitudes in the valley of, of eternity, and the valley of decision. And how many today that are going and crossing the line into the portals of eternity without Christ? And so I feel like for me, rather than having a pity party, you know, as you know, I went through stage four B-cell lymphoma uh, cancer just five, six years ago. Yes. And yet... Through that, the Lord reminded me, if I have a day or a hundred more years, I want to live every day as unto the Lord. He knows my appointed time. So I realized it's about eternity. It's not about the moment of what I'm going to. God always takes us beyond the moments of our challenges. I was just talking to the pastor of Governor Haley, Ambassador Haley, and I had the pleasure of meeting her and other governors in 2015 when we were doing these prayer events in their states. And he says, and in fact, she's told me these words herself, that the, when we came together to pray in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015, in, in June of 2015, four days before the shootings at Mother Emanuel AME Church and all that we would be going through in the country, she looks back to the moment where we came together in fastedness and prayer and worship for hours, lifting up no political agenda, agenda, no uh, pontificating by pastors. What we were doing was just simply, simply seeking the Lord together, crossing racial denominational lines. And she was one of the ones that came when we prayed over her. And she said she looks back to that day, still today, thinking in terms of what gives her the empowerment to keep focusing on. Now, she grew up as a Hindu. Her parents are still Sikh Hindus, but she and her husband are are, are members of a church and their pastor is is a friend of mine. So the reality is, is that that moment was a landmark for her. But all of us have to look back at the landmarks for us like that quote from Leonard Ravenhill that helps us in our time of need to draw from the well that never runs dry because it comes from the water source that never ceases. The rivers of God's life and grace that comes from the mercy seat of God that brings healing everywhere it goes in us and through us.
1: Such an amazing testimony, Doug. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing all of your books. He has a ton of books. You need to read all of his books. Um, But specifically, this book, Mending the Net, has meant a lot to me. Um, I I just feel like there's somebody listening to us today that is just experiencing some loss and is just uh, at a place where you feel like... (laughs) what God is happening into my life? Why am I having to, I'm losing things. I'm losing people. I'm, you know, at a place of loss. And I just feel like the Lord just wants to encourage you with what Doug said here. At the end of the day, we can't take these things with us. It's all about eternity. It's about impacting hearts and minds. And what you've left, Doug, uh, for people that follow is, is a legacy of loving people. And that's really all we can take with us um, to the thrones of heaven and throw those crowns at his feet, right? With passion. Can't wait to do that. So everybody get the book, Uh, find Doug at dougstringer.com or somebodycares.org and check out his ministry, check out what they're doing all around the world. And thank you, sir, for being a part of Christians Engaged and just an encouragement to all of us.
2: Thank you, Bunny. It's an honor to serve with you and appreciate you and, and your team.
0: Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is a production of Christians Engaged. We are a nonpartisan nonprofit that exists to awaken, motivate, and educate ordinary believers in Jesus Christ to pray for our nation regularly, vote in every election, and engage our hearts in some form of political activism. To learn more about us, please visit our website at christiansengaged.org, that's christiansengaged.org.